Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trustee Table. I'm Anne-Marie Balzano, Director of Leadership and Governance, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Joe Bowler. Dr. Bowler is a professor of mathematics education at Stanford University and the co-founder of Ucubed, a site to give teachers, parents, and students the resources and ideas they need to inspire and excite students about mathematics. She is the author of the first MOOC on mathematics teaching and learning, the author of 11 books and numerous research articles. She was recently named by the BBC as one of the eight educators changing the face of education. Her latest book, Limitless Mind, Learn, Lead, and Live Without Barriers, will be available September 3rd. Joe, thank you for taking a seat at the table today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I've been a big fan of your work for years now, and one of the things that I admire most is how you blow up preconceived assumptions about learning potential. You mentioned that we often grow into established beliefs about our own skill sets and abilities. Why is this the case for so many students and adults? I think we have a cycle where teachers teach as they were taught, mainly. We have many teachers who are still teaching as people were teaching hundreds of years ago. We also have government and district standards and testing and policy and pacing guides that cause teachers to feel that they just have to sort of rush through content and not do anything exciting or deep with it. So there are many factors at work that are meaning that teaching often isn't as it should be. That's interesting because I I know that when I was growing up, um, for me, math was always a really hard subject. And I got that into my head that, you know, well, that's just not something I'm good at. Um, I, I'm a better writer. And I think I got reinforced, you know, some of that was reinforced by by my teachers, but also with my experiences with other folks in my classroom as well. And that myth that you're born with a maths brain or you're not is one of the most damaging ideas that's in our society. And that alone causes many students to underachieve and feel really bad about math. Right. And I think that's, you know, for women in particular, right? I mean, when we, we have this like focus on STEM and, you know, getting more women involved in math, I think breaking that stereotype is really important. I think that we have a sort of double whammy where there's the myth that you're good at math or you're not and your brain is fixed. And then we layer into that all the not only sexist but racist stereotypical ideas about who should be doing math. And we get the situation we're in now. Exactly. So in your new book, you said that there are six keys to unlocking learning potential that you've uncovered in your research. Can you speak more about that for us? Um, The six keys. The first one, and really important, is learning about the new evidence we have from neuroplasticity and getting rid of that idea that your brain is fixed and instead knowing that every minute of the day your brain is changing, growing new pathways, developing and strengthening pathways and Our brains are incredibly plastic. The second one is around those times when we struggle and when we make mistakes. Those are the times where people think, oh, I'm not a maths person. I should just give up. And we have amazing evidence now that those are the best times for our brains. We want to be struggling, actually. We want to be making mistakes. Those are when our brains are developing more than any other time. So I should say that this book is packed with teaching ideas. And there are a lot of really cool ideas about how we value struggle and mistakes. So many students have been made to feel that those are not good things. So um, I was fortunate and I interviewed my team and I at Stanford interviewed 82 different people about the different teaching ideas they're using. And so a lot of those are in the book. 
So anyway, that's the second key. The third one is all around mindset and how when you change your beliefs, you actually change your reality. And some lovely, amazing new evidence that we've recently got about all of the things that change when you change your own mindset and when you start to believe differently. The fourth one is one of my favorites, which is that we now know a lot about the connected brain. Mm-hmm. And a brain that's really effective and working really well is one that has um, communication between different pathways in the brain. So with maths, for example, um, there are five different pathways involved every time we work on a maths problem. But the, the best way to work on a maths problem is to see it in different ways. So when we see it visually, perhaps, and then also see it with numbers, that causes uh, communication between those different pathways. Moving away from that one-dimensional approach to maths is in most schools where kids are just seeing numbers all the time mm-hmm. and having them encounter maths as words and pictures and visuals and movement and building, all of these different things cause a more connected brain. And then the fifth key is about how the new evidence we have showing that speed is really not important, definitely not important in mathematical thinking. What is important is to be really flexible in your thinking, to have a flexible approach to knowledge. And then the final key is around the importance of collaborating differently and what happens when we collaborate differently, what happens when we get kids to collaborate differently in a sort of limitless way it's really exciting to see the changes that come about. So all six of them are things that people may know already, things that people may be using, but for each of them, there are lots of teaching ideas and parenting ideas, and even ideas for business people, like what would happen if I did this differently? And some amazing stories and evidence of people who are doing things differently and how it's really changed things for them. Oh, that's really, that's fascinating. As you were speaking, one of the things that I was thinking about with that idea around struggle is sort of the counterpart of resiliency. You know, like, like how do we sort of impart that to, to students or even adults where, you know, struggle doesn't mean give up. You know, struggle means, you know, I'm learning and maybe I have to be thinking about this differently or maybe I need to collaborate with my peers or, or whatever. Yeah. Well, and that brings up the fact that a lot of these things relate to each other. So somebody who's really taking on all six of these ideas is really going to see changes, uh, in amazing changes. And the struggle one is a big one. Everybody, um, adults, kids, teachers, people in businesses, a whole lot of people feel bad when they struggle. Mm-hmm. And it causes them to change their pathways and to give up. And when we were teaching middle schoolers a couple of summers ago, we started off by saying to them, We want you to make mistakes. These are the best times for your brains. This is when synapses are firing in the brain. And that message changed them completely. And they talked to us about how in their regular classroom, they would have just given up when something was hard, but now they know it's good for them. And so they would push through and keep going. And we saw how much that message really changed the way the students um, engaged. Wow, I, that's that's amazing, and and I think it actually really speaks to, I think the the fifth key that you talked about was this idea that that speed doesn't matter, and I I can't tell you that I still see, you know, I think more like in elementary school, but that idea of like doing those timed worksheets, you know, like how many math facts can you get done in like sixty sixty seconds or whatever, and you know that that doesn't 
that doesn't align to to what the research is saying about this idea of taking your time. Those time tests are the beginning of mass anxiety for millions of people. And they're a large part of the reason we have this maths traumatized nation is those time tests that kids did in elementary school. We have, a, we have the brain evidence for why we shouldn't be doing those. We know that when people feel anxious, uh, part of their brain shuts down and it is the part you need when you're doing time tests. So these poor kids who become anxious when they get them, their brains literally cannot function. And so this is a terrible thing we're doing to kids. And some of the thing, um, one of the people I interview in my book talks about how when she was in school, she was going to be held back a grade because she wasn't good at time tests. And so she had to sit in the principal's office and do lots of them. And her mother set up a kitchen timer in mm-hmm. the kitchen for her to do these time tests against the clock. And she said she still comes out in a sweat if ever she hears a kitchen timer. And I just think about the trauma we put people through. Uh, that young kid who probably felt that this was a measure of her worth and she was failing at it. So I, I teach undergrads at Stanford. I get a lot of people come to my classes who are maths traumatized. And when I ask them, you know, like, what happened? When did this happen to you? Nearly all of them will talk about being in second grade or third grade and starting to do time tests. And from that point, some of them were traumatized by them. Others were pretty good at them. But at that point, they realized that maths was just a shallow activity of fast recall. And so they turned away from it as a subject. So I could probably spend the whole time on this podcast. (laughs) We should probably talk about other things. But yes, that's a really good one to change. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for for sharing those anecdotes. And you know, as as somebody who was also a victim of time tests in, in third grade, I can I can tell you that it was sort of traumatizing. But so moving on, I know that you've worked closely with with Carol Dweck on this idea of growth mindset. You know, applying it to specifically mathematical learning, but now in your new book to learning more holistically. So how do you see the idea of growth mindset? being helpful to independent school leaders and their trustees when they engage in, in like strategic planning or generative thinking? Mindset is a really important big idea that pervades everything, really. And I worry when I just, I see people out, teachers out in the system, just using different words and saying, oh, you, you just have to try harder. But they don't change other aspects of their teaching, which is what needs to happen and managers and others need to know about this so why do so many kids in our system have a fixed mindset tracking is a big part of it telling kids you are a low achiever and you're going into a low group will give them a fixed mindset actually when they've studied mindset and ability grouping they see that the kids who uh, most develop fixed mindsets are actually the kids who go into the top tracks Hmm. and that will hurt them also so we have a range of practices in school that we really need to rethink because they were based on uh, times when we didn't have the knowledge about brain growth and change when it made sense to think oh well we'll work out who can do what and put them in different groups and teach them differently that made sense at one point it doesn't make sense anymore and then teaching if you're teaching maths uh, in a way that it's just lots of questions with one answer and one method. I think of those as fixed questions. Kids think there's one way to do it, and if they can't do it, they think they're not a maths person. 
So really teaching for a growth mindset means opening up questions and inviting students to discuss them, to approach them in different ways, to listen to different methods and ideas and think about why they work. When questions are open up in the classroom, that's when kids can really see that they can grow and those growth mindset ideas can actually take root. Hmm. So do you see that those sort of growth mindset questions could be asked in a boardroom when a group of trustees are, are thinking about, you know, the school's viability five, ten years down the road? I mean, since I've really moved to having a more of a growth mindset, it changes everything I do. And I think it comes up all the time and it comes up in my team meetings with my team members. And yeah, thinking that you can do anything, that anything is possible. That's the ultimate growth mindset. And when you're thinking about school planning, really shooting for the stars, like what do we really want? And knowing that you can get there if you work hard enough, you'll (laughs) find ways to get there. Great. So how might heads of school help their faculty incorporate a more limitless perspective in how they engage with students, particularly students with learning differences? So we have to rethink the labels we give to kids, because even students who we might think of as having severe special needs, Mm -hmm. turns out you work with them differently. They can also achieve anything a book I read recently, it was a really interesting book written by a parent about her son, Nicholas. And Nicholas grew up in Australia. And in first grade, he was told by his teachers that he had learning difficulties. He had a very low IQ. And at the first parent evening, they told his mother he was the worst child they'd seen in 20 mm-hmm. years. Oh my gosh. Amazing. That he couldn't function, couldn't read, couldn't write, couldn't sit still. Anyway, last year, Nicholas graduated from Oxford University with a doctorate in mathematics. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, I talked to a lot of mathematicians with very fixed mindsets. So I'm very happy when I have cases like Nicholas, because obviously, if anybody can do it, if these kids with these who start with such severe challenges can go on and do these things, we really have to stop and question, I think, the way we think about kids and particularly the way we give labels to students. That's very, very true. What about in terms of planning lessons? I know that you mentioned when we were talking earlier about the the six key factors that you found in your research, this idea of collaboration. So how might heads of school support their faculty in maybe creating more of those sort of learning experiences? Well, I have three online courses. One is for students, parents, teachers. It's a little free six session course, 15 minutes each. It's been taken by a quarter of a million people, changes mindsets, changes ideas. But then I have two courses for teachers that really give a lot of these practical ideas as well as the book. And one thing we've found is, uh, something we started last year was when teachers were given paid time to sit together and they took a session of the online class and then they would talk together about, okay, so what should we try in our classrooms? And then they would go out and try it and then they'd come back and then they'd sit together again and say, what happened? Let's talk to each other about what happened. So I love that. The teachers were paid for their time. They weren't doing this in their own time. And it doesn't have to be the online class. It can be books. They can do book studies. But just coming together and supporting teachers with time to think, what are we going to do differently? And let's go out and try something and then come back and learn from each other, uh, maybe modify, maybe try something else. So I, I'm a big supporter of 
having teachers work together in planning different approaches to teaching. Oh, that's great. And I think that mirrors really nicely what you were saying earlier around, you know, having students work together and struggle and, and figure out things differently. Teachers should have those same opportunities to, to learn together and to struggle and, and to think about, you know, how might they approach teaching and learning differently as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I know that a lot of teachers have fixed mindsets because they were given fixed ideas as children. And when we worked with these teachers that I just mentioned, what they all talked about is how they themselves changed the way they viewed themselves. Mm. And they came in with totally fixed ideas about maths, about themselves. And they changed. They changed the way they thought about themselves. And that was what allowed them to change how they taught the kids and what they did differently with their students. So I think we have to recognize that teachers need the time to develop a limitless perspective about themselves Mm -hmm. and think differently about what they do and can do and the way they work. And yes, to do it together with others, collaborate, encounter challenge differently, encounter knowledge differently. I always, when I work with maths teachers, give them a lot of time to work on maths together and to see it differently. And that can be quite transformative for people. So I do think they need that time and that time to rethink their own relationship with knowledge. I couldn't agree with you more. As you may know, school trustees come from multiple professions and are likely to have a variety of preconceived notions about learning. So how might the head of school and a board chair best educate their board about unlocking learning potential in the ways that you've been advocating? Well, they could all get a copy of my book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they need to know about these six ideas. And one of the things we really do need to work on is the, the public, parents, people on boards, because we know there's a very high chance they will not have these ideas. They'll think incorrectly about knowledge and learning and mindset and all of these things. So I think it's just as important to get the ideas to parents, to trustees, to people in management positions as it is to teachers and others. Great. Well, Joe, thank you so much for your time today. I know that the insights you've shared with us will be invaluable to our members. Oh, it's really good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Trustee Table. We've included some great resources on some of the areas we discussed at NAIS.org, and you can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes. Please be sure to listen, rate, review, and subscribe to a new episode each month. Thank you for listening.